Amen, amen. Didn't our worship team do a phenomenal job leading us this morning? And didn't Miss Melody Webb do a good job leading the melody of that song? <laughs> it's a tremendous job, the wife of our worship pastor. We're so grateful for her, and I'm so grateful that you're here on the very first Sunday in a brand new year. Was God good to you in 2023? Yeah? Three of you he was good to in 2023. <laughs> I can tell you, he, he's been good to me and my family in 2023, Amen. and I'm trusting him for 2024, and there's no better way to begin the year than to begin it the very first Lord's Day in a brand new year than with God's people here in the house of the Lord, and so I'm so glad that you're here. Those who may be joining us as guests, we want to welcome you, and I am so glad that you are here, and I um, hope it don't scare you off this morning. hope you'll come back, and so... Uh, Praise God. Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and open it up with me and find the letter to the Romans in the New Testament. If you're not sure where that might be, remember the New Testament begins, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And so the book of Romans is where we're going to be for some time. And in a moment, we'll read... Uh, from verse 1, while you're finding your place, I'm reminded of a story that's found in the 18th chapter of Luke where Jesus told a parable, a story where he illustrated true righteousness as opposed to the kind of righteousness which is counterfeit, uh, what we would say uh, is self-righteousness. And in verse 9 of that passage, Jesus says that he told this parable to those uh, Luke says that he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That is, they thought that their righteousness before God was on the basis of their own moral performance and they looked down on everybody else who didn't somehow measure up to the same level of performance that they themselves did. So that in the story... Jesus says that two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed in this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And Jesus said that the tax collector, however, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his chest, which was a sign of humility. And here's what he said. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then down in verse 14 of that text, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the first. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In fact, if you look at the prayers of those two different men, the Pharisee, even though he addresses his prayer to God, you want to know who the subject of his prayer really is? Himself. Because no less than five times in his prayer, he says, I, I do this, and I do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do that. So that really he's praying to himself. 
trusting in his own moral performance. But the tax collector, however, in his prayer, he addresses his prayer to God, but God is the subject of his prayer because essentially here's what he's saying. God, I need you to be merciful to me, a sinner. So that he recognizes if there's any hope for him, it's got to be by virtue of God's grace and mercy. And Jesus said, that's the man who goes home justified. The one who casts himself upon the mercies and the grace of God and looks to God as the source of his righteousness. Now, here's the thing. The question is, how can sinful people ever be justified in the sight of a holy God? Because that's the greatest need in your life, my life, the life of any person. To be in right standing with Almighty God who created us in His image. Now sin has affected that. Because of sin, we're alienated from God. Every person is born in that sin condition where he's separated from God. And if there's to be any hope for him whatsoever, God's got to do something for, for us. And so that question, how can sinful people ever be made right with God? That's a question we all have to grapple with because your eternity hangs in the balance. And yet, this question is the very question that finds its answer in the book of Romans. And so, for that reason, in the very first chapter of Romans, we're going to read several verses here in just a moment, but we're beginning a brand new series of sermons and studies through Romans and that's something that I've really been praying about for quite some time. So notice with me just introductory verses beginning Romans chapter 1, verse number 1. The Bible says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now go down to verse number 7. He says, to all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go down to verse number 15. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God, now pay attention to that expression, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in our time this morning, I really want to just provide you with an introduction to Paul's letter to the Romans. And I'll speak from that subject, just a general introduction to the book. But in this particular epistle, the Apostle Paul is explaining for us the righteousness of God. And he says that it's found in the gospel. And it's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ that by God's grace, through faith in God's Son, sinners are justified. And Paul explains this in 16 chapters in his letter to the Romans. Now, I've been in pastoral ministry this year marks 22 years where week in and week out I have I have entered the pulpit and I have preached and taught and explained uh, verse by verse through various portions of scripture. 
And yet this marks the very first time in my pastoral ministry where I've ever attempted a verse-by-verse study through Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, I've read Romans many times in my own devotional life. Uh, I've, I've even preached from the book of Romans several times over those years, but never in a verse-by-verse expositional way. But today marks the first time that I'm going to attempt to do that. Now, the reason for that is largely due to the fact that Romans has been studied and scrutinized by scholars and pastors and theologians whose grasp of its theological themes far surpass my own. And there are some hard truths that are found within its 16 chapters, some of which are also the source of much debate. Alan Redpath, in his uh, opening comments to a commentary on Romans by John Phillips, uh, said this. He said, I discovered that in these days, so many of us as Christians have settled for only a half salvation. Now, obviously, he's, he's um, speaking facetiously there because it's impossible for you to be half saved. Uh, you're not just partially saved, you're not three-quarters of the way saved, you're either saved or you're not. One person expressed it this way, there's only two categories of people who are alive. There are the saints and the ain'ts. (laughs) And all of us are in one of those two categories. But he says that we found it easy. What he means by that, we found it easy to accept the truth of Christ's death for us on the cross and the shedding of his blood as the basis for the forgiveness of our sins... And we rejoice in the fact that there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And yet we find it difficult to believe that not only does the cross supply the answer to the past and give me hope for the future, but it also proclaims to us with no uncertainty a present day experience of deliverance. So that in salvation, God's not just dealing with my past and he's not just dealing with my future. Thank God that I am saved. I've been rescued from judgment in eternity, separated from God in hell. I'm glad to know that I've been forgiven and that I've been saved. And I'm also glad to know that when I die, I know with confidence that I'm going to go to heaven and be with God for all of eternity. And yet, what we tend to miss, if we're not careful, is that God fully intends the gospel to provide you with a present-day deliverance. So that you and I understand something of the power of God unto salvation as it's explained in the gospel and expounded upon by the Apostle Paul here in Romans. And so you might could say that the letter to the Romans represents the cathedral of Christian truth. It's the premier doctrinal letter of the Christian faith. Uh, What the Constitution is to our United States, you could say that Romans is to the Christian faith. Don't know if you've ever been to the National Archives in our nation's capital. But if you ever make a trip to visit Washington, D.C., on your list of stops, you need to go to the National Archives. Now, you need to get there early, and you're going to stand in line when you get there. But if you go to the National Archives, you'll discover that there, under preservation, under lock and key, uh, you'll find the founding documents of our country that are there. You can view them. Uh, There's the Constitution. Uh, There's the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. All of that's there preserved in the National Archives, and you can see it. In fact, uh, they're so well-preserved that there's just this remarkable uh, 
thick glass and I don't know all of the science behind it but somehow the lights are just a certain way to protect the documents because they're so old and at night they even lower those documents underground and keep them at a certain temperature. Now if all that's just important as far as our nation's um, founding documents is concerned, how much more important is it that the Holy Spirit has preserved the Word of God for us and in particular Paul's letter to the church at Rome, which is like the constitution of our faith. John Stott has said this, Paul's letter to the Romans is a Christian manifesto of sorts. Yes, it's a letter whose contents were determined by the particular situations in which the apostle and the Romans found themselves at that time, and yet it remains a timeless manifesto, a manifesto of freedom through Jesus Christ. He says it's the fullest plainest, grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. And the message of Romans is not that man was born free and now he is in chains, but it's that every human being is born in chains, but that Jesus Christ came to set us free. And so any, anyone who hopes to grow deeply in their understanding of, of the truth, at some point they've got to anchor their mind in what Paul writes here in his letter to the Romans. In fact, there have been faithful preachers and teachers all throughout the centuries who have labored in their efforts to guide believers through these 16 chapters. There was a Swiss theologian by the name of Godet who pointed out that every major movement of revival in the history of the Christian church has in some way been connected with a rediscovery of the truths which are explained in Paul's letter to the Romans. Adrian Rogers said that it's a book that changed the world. In fact, you just consider with me how this has been the case. If we were to go back in time, say we went all the way back to the 4th century, we would discover that there was a young man by the name of Aurelius Augustine who was a brilliant young man but he was living just a very immoral lifestyle. His father was a pagan. His mother was a devout Christian. Her name was Monica. And I suppose like many a godly mother, she prayed earnestly for her son who was deeply entrenched in this immoral lifestyle. Well, Augustine, he was under conviction, deep conviction one day. And he was pacing back and forth in a garden. And as he was doing so, he happened to overhear some children who were playing just beyond the wall of the garden. And here's what they were saying. Tole lege. Tole lege. Which is Latin for take up and read. And so Augustine, he interpreted this as a sign. He immediately went to the copy of the scriptures. And the place in which he, his eyes fell upon was from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13, which says this, knowing the time, it's high time to wake up out of your sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the unfruitful works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day not in revelry or drunkenness or lewdness and lust and strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh 
And so Augustine read those words, the power of God unto salvation was demonstrated in his life and he was gloriously converted to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, he went on to become one of the leading, if not the leading theologian in the church all the way from the days of the early church leading all the way up to the Reformation in the 16th century. And it all began with him rediscovering the simple truth of the gospel as Paul explains it in his letter to the Romans. If we were to fast forward from Augustine's day, nearly a thousand years, just a little bit over a thousand years, there's another young man. His name is Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, he was just doing all that he could to try to earn acceptance with God, to try to somehow earn the favor of God through good works and good deeds. He even joined a monastery and became a monk. He made a pilgrimage to Rome. And yet, in spite of all of those good deeds and good works, none of it could really remove the guilt that Luther knew deep down in his soul. And so one day as he was studying none other than the book of Romans, he came across this particular phrase, the righteousness of God. And it was something that just stuck in his mind. He couldn't get past the fact, the righteousness of God. And, and, and a misunderstanding of that led him to really hate God because Luther had already, always interpreted it to mean the perfection of God and the righteousness of God, which he expects from us. And so by his own admission, no matter how hard that he had tried, Luther understood his own imperfection kept him from ever fully living up to that standard of perfection, the righteousness of God. But when he was reading a commentary that was written by Augustine and studying Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, the Holy Spirit opened his mind and heart and he came to understand that what the Apostle Paul is describing here, it's not the righteousness of moral performance in my own life or your life, but it's the righteousness of God that God gives us as a gift by means of his grace, which is received through simple faith in Jesus Christ. And Luther said, then and there, I felt like I was born again. It was a life-changing experience for him. And so, of course, God used him uh, to launch the Protestant Reformation. And he would later write that the letter to the Romans is the masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. Well deserving that every Christian not only learn it by heart, word for word, but also that he should deal with it daily as if it were the daily bread of his soul. He said it can never be too much or too well read or studied. And the more that it's handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. He said the more I chew on it and the more I give myself to meditating upon it, the sweeter and sweeter it is to my taste. Now I'll just use an illustration here. I love steak. In fact, I'd imagine most of us in the room enjoy steak. If you don't, you need to get right with the Lord. But anyway, I love a good steak. And I like my steak cooked a certain way. I like it medium. Not medium well. Some of y'all want to chew on like football leather or something. No, I want it to be medium. I don't want it to be medium rare, but I want it medium. And man, when it's seasoned just right, oh, there's nothing like a good taste of a steak. You know the kind when you just chew it, it just gets better and better and better. Every, that's what it is to chew on the meat of God's word, by the way. It just gets sweeter with each taste, with each bite. Luther said that's the way it is with the book of Romans. Time won't permit me to explain how Romans was influential in the life of John Bunyan. 
It was through studying the book of Romans that Bunyan was inspired to write the Pilgrim's Progress. Or one more example I'll give you is John Wesley. If you're familiar with his life, you know that he was greatly used of God uh, in that great revival movement that swept across England in the 18th century and really throughout the world for that matter. But if you know something about Wesley's testimony, you'll know that he too was a religiously ambitious man as a young man who was really relying upon his works and his effort in order to find justification with God. In fact, Wesley even became a missionary to America, to the the Native Americans in the state of Georgia. But it was a fruitless enterprise by his own admission. There was no fruit. He felt like a failure. He went back home to London completely dejected. He wrote this in his journal. He said, I went to America to convert the heathen, but who will convert me? It wasn't too many months after that that John Wesley went to a religious meeting at Aldersgate Street where he writes about this also in his journal. He says, someone was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Then and there did I trust in Christ alone for my salvation. And he says, an assurance was given to me that he had taken away all my sins and saved me from the law of sin and death. He said, now, Pastor, why are you telling telling us all of this? Because listen, from Augustine to Luther, from Luther to Wesley, and who knows how many untold millions of men and women have all experienced the power of God to salvation from the gospel truth as it's explained by the Apostle Paul right here in the book of Romans. Now, folks, let me tell you something. If it's led to revival once those truths are rediscovered, if it happened in the 4th century or in the 18th century, What's going to keep it from happening in my life and your life in 2024? What's going to keep it from happening uh, in our own local church? And so that's the truth that we're going to study in these coming weeks. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm not going to rush my way through it. In fact, someone asked me earlier this week, they said, well, I know you're preaching the introduction to Romans. How far do you think you'll get? I said, well, the first word in verse 1 is Paul, and that's probably about as far as I'll get. Donald Gray Barnhouse, 1927, when he became the pastor at Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church. He began by preaching through Romans, and he stayed there for three and a half years. He never took a text anywhere else. I'm not going to do that. But here's what he said. He said, I saw the church transformed, the audience filled, the pews, and then the galleries, and the work went on with great blessing. And he said this, but just as important as the transformation of the church, there was the transformation of the preacher. And so I fully intend that a study of Paul's letter to the Romans is going to be transformational and life-changing in my own experience. And I trust that you'll pray that in your own life as well. I can guarantee you this. If you allow the truth of Paul's letter to the Romans to just permeate your soul, your mind and your soul, to find its way deep down in your soul, you will never be the same again. Romans will equip you for whatever you face in this new year. We're only one week into a brand new year. There are 51 more weeks. None of us know what this year holds, but we know who holds the year. 
And so Romans will give you courage when it comes to facing your own death and your own mortality. You don't have to go to your death or face sickness with a sense of fear or trepidation when you truly understand the truth as it's explained in the book of Romans. It will assist you in life's emergencies and heartaches. It will keep you balanced and on the level whenever things go well for you and you prosper. You know, oftentimes when things go well in our lives, we tend to get comfortable and complacent. Romans will keep you humble and dependent upon God and His grace and His mercy. It's the absolute bedrock of Christian truth set on fire by the Holy Spirit of God and it will change our hearts if we allow it to. I love what Chuck Swindoll has said. He said, great treasure is buried deep. It's never found easily or quickly, but it is always worth the dig. And so with that in mind, let's take our shovel this morning and let's begin to dig. And so some of the questions that I'll answer in the time remaining are questions such as these. Who is it exactly that wrote the book of Romans? And once we determine who wrote Romans, who received it? When was it written? Why was it written? What was the overall message? In fact, I've provided, with you, uh, provided you a nice little study guide there. You can take that. You can follow along and, and, and fill in the notes as we go along this morning. Number one, notice with me the authorship of the letter. There are 16 chapters 433 verses, 7,111 words in Romans. And in the very first word, we're told who the author is. So we don't have to look too far. It's the Apostle Paul. Paul, he's the author, the human author, that is, of this inspired letter to the Romans. Now, letter writing was very different in the first century than it is in our own time. In fact, I don't know that we write letters a whole, whole lot anymore because of the relative convenience that we have with text messaging and email. We may, have, we may have lost the art of just putting together a handwritten letter for that matter. But in the first century, letter writing was typically whoever was writing the letter would sign their name first rather than last. In our day, we often write our note and we sign our name at the end. Well, in the first century world, One's letter was put there at the very beginning. One's name, that is. And so Paul, he's the human author of this letter to the church at Rome. And it's not an understatement to say that Paul had a greater impact on the formation of the early church than anyone else for that matter. No other apostle had the impact that he has. Nearly half of the New Testament bears his name as an author. Thirteen of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. 16 of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts focus on his life and ministry. Going all the way from his time as a persecutor of Christians. We read about his wonderful conversion to faith in Acts chapter 9. His call to be the apostle to the Gentiles by the Lord Jesus. And then there are three missionary journeys that largely take us all the way through Acts chapter 28. And so Paul was the most effective missionary, I believe, in church history. Uh, seminary students who are, perhaps they're, they're, uh, they've responded to the call of God to go to the nations. Maybe they're going to be commissioned through our International Mission Board. They go to seminary. Part of their seminary education involves studying the life of the Apostle Paul. The mission of God as we see it illustrated in the life of the Apostle Paul. I also believe that he was the greatest Christian who ever lived. 
And so it's Paul then who writes this letter to the Romans. We know that it's somewhere near the end of his third missionary journey. Acts chapter 20, verse number 3, says that he was living in Corinth for about a three-month period of time. And more than likely, this is when he's writing this letter to the church at Rome. Now, the interesting thing is, Paul had never been to Rome. He didn't plant the church at Rome. We don't really know who planted the church at Rome. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Peter, even though some try to make the case that it was. I do believe that there are textual clues in the book of Acts as to how the church at Rome came to be. In fact, if you go with me for just a moment to Acts chapter 2, I'm going to show you a clue. You know that Acts chapter 2 records the events of Pentecost. Peter is preaching there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. He's preaching the gospel. There are people from all over the world who've come, religious Jews who've come to the city uh, from all over the Roman Empire. They're coming. They've been there since Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're there now at Pentecost. And notice verse 10, uh, Luke says that there are those from Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. And notice he says, visitors from Rome. So that I believe that the church at Rome is planted by these visitors from Rome who are at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They hear Peter preach the message of the gospel. They come to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so they go back home to Rome and thus the church is planted in the city. Now let me make some application here. You may think, you know something, God can't use me because I'm not the the caliber of a preacher like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. Or like some other influential Christian leader that you admire. Listen, do you know that God specializes in using ordinary people as instruments of his grace? God changes the lives of men and women just like me and you. And he uses us and our gospel witness for the sake of his name. And so don't think that God doesn't want to use you like these visitors from Rome to be influential in your circles of influence. Let me tell you, if we're going to reach our city for Christ, it won't happen because there's some superstar that reaches the city. It won't happen because there's some well-to-do leader that God uses in a powerful way. No, it'll happen when you and I fall in love with Jesus as just simple men and women whose lives have been changed by his gospel. And we go into our world and our circles of influence with the good news of the love of God and what God has done in Christ. And we gossip the gospel everywhere that we go. That's how God works. Now, I'm going to show you something else if you go to Romans chapter 16 for just a second. Because there's one person that you need to meet who's mentioned by name. Romans chapter 16, there are about 35 names that Paul mentions at the conclusion of the letter. Many of whom have been his associates. Some that he knows from Corinth and his time in Corinth, which also is a clue that he's writing from the city of Corinth. But if you look at verse number 22, verse 22 mentions the name of someone who's mentioned only one time in the Bible, and it's here at Romans 16, verse 22. His name is Tertius. Verse 22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And you say, okay, pastor, I thought you were making the case that Paul is the one who writes the letter. Well, that's true. Paul is indeed the human author. But you see, he uses an amanuensis. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, think of manuscript. 
coming from a Latin word that means uh, to write by hand. And Amanuensis was a scribe, was someone who uh, made it their profession to assist someone who was a busy leader like the Apostle Paul. And so, yes, the Apostle Paul is the one who is the human author of Romans. That is, it's God in his spirit who's breathing out his word to the Apostle Paul. But as he's reading that, as he's perhaps dictating that, Tertius is a busy scribe who's writing down what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, why is that important? Because, listen, it explains a doctrine known as inspiration. Someone says, well, how did we come to have the Word of God? It's by inspiration. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, it's breathed out by God. The word is theonoustos in Greek. God breathed. Which means that what we have in the letter to the Romans and what we have in the 27 books of the New Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, is nothing less than the inspired, the inerrant, and the infallible Word of God that God has preserved for every generation. And so that's why you can rest assured that a study of Romans is life-changing. Because the Bible says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it will absolutely change your life and my life. Well, that's the authorship of the book. Now, notice quickly, number two, the address. What's the address of the letter? Well, if you go down to verse number seven there in chapter one, Paul says that he's writing to all of those in Rome who were loved by God. So the address of the book, the recipients of the book, it's, it's these believers who were there in Rome. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul describes them as those who are in Rome. He's not writing to the church of Rome. Uh, Paul never uses that language in any of his epistles. When he writes to the church at Corinth, he doesn't write to the, those who are of Corinth. No, he says, I'm writing to those who are in Corinth. When he writes to the Ephesians, he's not writing to those who are of the city of Ephesus. He says, no, I'm writing to those who are in Ephesus. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? I'll tell you what the big deal is. It's a reminder of the fact that we may be in the world as believers, but we're not of the world. And these believers may be in Rome, but they are not of Rome because their ultimate citizenship is in another city, in another country. A heavenly country. Their citizenship is in heaven. That's important that they understand that because it would be very difficult to be a Christian living in a pagan wicked city like Rome. Rome was the capital of the world at this particular point in time. And yet, here you have these faithful believers who were there. By the way, God sees to it that he has believers all over the place. Dark places. Hard to reach places. Places where wickedness and sin is abundant. God has a witness. You, you get discouraged when you look around and you see where we are culturally as a nation. Listen, don't be discouraged by that. But recognize that God has you and me here for such a time as this. To be witnesses. To testify to his truth and his goodness and his grace. And so it was for these believers who were there in Rome. And it's providential that they're there in Rome. 
In fact, it's providential that the gospel makes its way to Rome. It's providential that God's son came into the world when he did. It wasn't by accident or coincidence, but it was at God's appointed time. You see, God raised up the Roman Empire to provide a sense of stability and peace throughout the world at this particular time. The Romans paved more than 50,000 miles of roads, which was unlike anything up until this point in history, and that made travel throughout the empire relatively easier than it had been. And Paul took advantage of all of those opportunities to take the gospel down those Roman roads and share the gospel in cities and plant churches. By the way, what's our excuse for not sharing the gospel with our friends? For not being passionate as far as mission is concerned to our neighbors and to the nations. You know, it is relatively easier than it ever has been. We're more connected with people now than we ever have been. Now think about how travel is easier than it's ever been. It may be expensive, but it's easier than it's ever been. There's technology that we can use to our advantage to get the gospel out. And so we really have no excuse, do we? But you see, the address of this letter to the Romans, it is these Roman believers who were there in this difficult, difficult city of Rome. And Paul, he's writing to them. He's going to explain his purpose in a moment. He's got a personal reason also for why he's writing to these Romans because he has, a, he has it in his mind that at some point he's going to go to Spain. And he's going to take the gospel west. And, and so he's going to go to Jerusalem at the close of his third missionary journey. He's going to deliver a relief offering to the impoverished saints there in Jerusalem. And then he's going to make his way to Rome, spend some time with these Roman believers. He's going to enlist their financial support and backing to really help finance his mission on to Spain. Now that never happens in Paul's life. You say, why not? Well, because when he gets to Jerusalem, he's arrested by the religious authorities. And he is imprisoned, he appeals to Caesar, and he waits two full years, but eventually he makes his way to Rome, but he, he, he goes to Rome as a prisoner. By the way, what if God answers your prayer, but not in the way you thought? What if you're praying for patience, but he's going to answer your prayer by putting you in some circumstances that are going to where you're going to have to demonstrate some patience, rely upon him to produce some patience in your life? What if you're praying for the salvation of a child or someone that you love, maybe a friend, and God's going to save them, but he's going to do it in a way that you never saw coming. He's going to introduce pain into their life to get their attention. Are you prepared for that? Well, so much for the authorship of the book, so much for the address of the book. Something else I'll mention quickly is the uh, argument of the book. What's Paul's thesis? Well, if you look down at verse 15, he gets to that. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says this in verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so here he is stating his thesis. Uh, he's going to take 16 chapters and he's going to explain what the gospel is. 
and how it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. He's going to explain how sinful people like me and you can be justified in the sight of the holy God. And that's the argument that he's going to make. Now, at the top of your notes page, I've given you a key principle to understand the overall theme or argument of Romans. And so here's this key principle. Romans teaches us that righteousness does not come from our ongoing effort to keep the law. That's, that's self-righteousness. Someone says, well, I, I, I'll, I'll make myself righteous and I'll earn my way into God's good graces by keeping his law. Well, let me ask you a question. How's that been working out for you lately? Because you'll discover that the law was never given so that you keep it with sinless perfection. Because let me tell you something, you can't. There's only one person who's ever kept the law of God with sinless perfection. And it's not you, it's not me, it's Jesus Christ, God's own son. And Paul's going to make the point that the law was given to reveal the righteousness of God. And to convict me of my sin and show me that I need a savior. And to direct me to faith in Jesus. And so righteousness does not come from our ongoing effort to keep the law, but rather by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you want to know what Romans is about? Well, right there it is in just a simple sentence. Paul's theme is the justification of the guilty sinner before a holy God. That's what he's going to write all about. I read something recently in the life of Oliver Cromwell who was a military commander in England during the 17th century. But in his day, it was a common practice for men of importance to have their portraits painted. And it wasn't unusual for an artist to avoid depicting those less attractive aspects of a person's face. That's just a nice way of saying all the ugly parts of us, they would leave out. Nowadays, we've got Instagram filters and Facebook filters for all of that. But you see, Oliver Cromwell, he wanted nothing to do with any likeness or portrait that would flatter him. And so he had always had this massive wart on his chin. And when the artist asked whether or not he wanted to include the wart, Oliver Cromwell said this, Sir, paint me as I am, warts and all. Now, how many of you have ever used that expression before at some point in your life? I guarantee you, you have. And now you know that it comes from Oliver Cromwell. And the point that I'm making is this. Some people think that they've got to be good before they can ever come to God. Don't try to get good before you ever come to God. Because that's not the gospel. There are a lot of people who were living under this misunderstanding that, you know what, one of the reasons that they're not here this morning is because they think, well, I'm not good enough. And once I live up to a particular standard of goodness, then I guess that I'll come to God, or I guess I'll come to church. If you wait until you're good enough, my friend, you will never come at all because you will never be good enough in and of yourself. You don't wait until you're good to come to God. You come to God in faith and repentance, and you trust that he's the one who's going to declare you righteous. Because that's the gospel. And so on the basis of your faith in Christ's sinlessness, his death, his resurrection, 
Sinners are justified freely by God's grace. And that is the argument of the book of Romans. What about the arrangement? I'll close with this. The last thing that you notice is the arrangement of the book. How is it that Paul arranges his overall argument? Well, simply put, you can say that the first 11 chapters deal with doctrinal issues. The last five chapters are practical instructions. That's just sort of a big picture approach. There in your notes page, I've included just a simple outline. In fact, that insert there is from our friends at Insight for Living. If you're interested in seeing how the book of Romans is really laid out and how Paul lays out his argument, you can take that little chart, you can study it, put it there in your Bible, read it at some other point. But I've just sort of explained it in a really simple way there uh, in your notes. Paul's introduction goes all the way through verse 17 of chapter 1. And then part 1 of his argument really begins at verse 18 of chapter 1, goes all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. And in these chapters and verses, he explains the condemnation of sin. By the way, you know the good news is never good news until you understand the bad news first. And so he explains the bad news and how all of humanity and the whole world is under condemnation because of sin. And in chapter 1, he uses very descriptive, very graphic language to describe how this is the case. Now, I'll go ahead and forewarn you, Romans chapter 1 is not politically correct. But I'm going to preach it because I don't care about being politically correct. Y'all have learned that in 10 years of me being here. I'd rather be biblically faithful than politically correct any day of the week. Amen. And so he deals with the condemnation of sin. And then moving into verse 21 of that third chapter, he transitions and, and he describes salvation for sinners. And here's, here's where it just gets so good. Here's how God has responded to the dilemma of man's sin and alienation. He's done so through his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul explains what that looks like from verse 21 of chapter 3 all the way through the end of chapter 8. And then in part 3, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he sort of deals with this issue of Israel as a nation. And here you find the subject of vindication of sovereignty. And he deals with Israel's rejection and their future inclusion and all such as that in those chapters. And then finally, he'll conclude with part 4 by providing exhortation to saints, practical instructions. So that he says, in light of everything that I've explained doctrinally, here's how now practically you and I are to live our lives as the people of God. And he then concludes the book there in the last chapter. Now, that's a 30,000 foot airplane view of Paul's letter to the Romans. But let me tell you this before I pray. If every great spiritual revival in history can be traced back to a rediscovery of these wonderful truths that Paul describes in Romans, what might he be doing in your own life right now? Because I fully anticipate this is going to be a year of transformation in your life and my life, in the life of our church, and I even pray our city and points beyond. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray this morning? Pastor, I know that I am a guilty sinner before God. I know that. 
What must I do to be saved? Like that Philippian jailer, maybe you've got that question. It's just you've been wrestling with. What must I do to be saved? How can I ever be justified? How can I be right with a holy God? Listen to me. It's not by praying the prayer of the Pharisee. God, I thank you for all that I've done. I've done this and I've done that and I've joined the church and I've been baptized so many times the fish know my social security number. (laughs) No, listen to me. Sinners are made right with God by means of His grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And that's the gospel. And for some of you this morning, maybe that's eye-opening. You think, I thought that I was saved by being good enough, by joining the church, by praying a prayer. No, it's by God's grace through faith alone in God's Son. He died for your sin on the cross. He rose again from the dead. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that you this morning? With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to lead us in a prayer here in just a moment. Parker's going to come and he's going to lead us in a worship song. Maybe you need to respond in obedient faith and say, Lord Jesus, this morning I confess my sin and I turn from all self-righteous effort trying to keep the law and trying to be good enough to earn salvation. I believe that Christ died for my sins, was buried rose again from the dead and I confess Jesus as Lord please save me and if that's you this morning we'd like to celebrate with you we'd like to pray with you further I've got some pastors that'll be right here I'll be right here at the front at the end of the service you can come find me seek me out we can talk to you about what baptism is and how that's the first step of obedience for someone who's come to faith in Jesus Maybe you need to come and pray for someone that you love who needs to be saved. This altar is open, and I encourage you to just mind the Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for these life-changing truths, the power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And Lord, may there be a rediscovery of this precious truth of the gospel in our own hearts and lives, the ministry of our church. May you bring revival. May we live our lives on mission as your people because the world around us is lost and in the dark. But Lord, there's hope in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.